Hey there, Live Like Your Nail Color gals. Relationships are essential, right? Relationships help us get things done. Relationships help us get through tough times. And especially as women, our closest relationships have a tremendous impact on how we see ourselves and how much hope and resilience we have in our everyday lives. That's why I'm doing an episode miniseries on women's essential relationships. Together, we're exploring our relationships as adult women with aging parents, romantic partners, adult children, and female friends. Having been on this planet for several decades, we've had shit happen in these relationships. How have these moments shaped us? And at this point, what can we do to use those moments to become stronger, healthier, and happier? We kicked off the series talking about what we can gain, yes, gain, from a romantic relationship breakup. Dr. Sherry Yoder calls them breakup breakthroughs. It was so good, so helpful. You just got to listen if you haven't. Today, we're exploring your relationship with your parents who are aging, and you're now in a caregiving role. I'm there, and so many of you are or will be. Honestly, I used to dread this whole thing, but I'm moving into seeing this as a beautiful time, though definitely not easy. Even if you aren't currently caregiving for aging parents, chances are you know a friend who is. So listen for a few nuggets to encourage and support them. Trust me, it will mean so much. But first, before we dive into our conversation, have you taken my quiz to determine your nail color persona? All you have to do is go to livelikeyournailcolor.com, answer a few questions, and in your results, discover your specific nail color persona. There's five. Your built-in strengths and how to tap into those strengths when chip happens. Again, go to livelikeyournailcolor.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Tired of so much chip happening? Discouraged by so much downer news? Weary from chronic crisis? Don't let the chips keep you down. Welcome to the Live Like Your Nail Color podcast, where the tips of your fingers and toes are ready to inspire you to not give up and to keep creating the business, career, and life you want. In each episode, we flip the chip and let our fun nail color with that crazy fun name cheer us on to remember our strengths, embrace the power of choice, see life as an adventure, and know resilience is only a touch-up or change-up away. Get ready for a good time and a good laugh with your host, Mary Foley. Welcome back, Live Like Your Nail Color Gals. Hard to believe, but it's been almost a year since I moved back to my hometown to be within a few miles of my aging parents. You know, they really are amazing. They're 87 and 88 years old, living independently and doing fairly well. But still, time marches on and takes a toll because then it happened. Earlier this year, my mom fell and broke her hip, which threw me into a whole world of caregiving. Today's gal pal describes it like this. Dive in. The water is, well, it's choppy and freezing and you can't see land in any direction. I certainly felt that way, especially at the beginning. And while each caregiving journey is unique, there's one certainty. You will face unfamiliar tasks and situations and there's no training manual that comes with it. Not only are you thrown into the sea of confusion, trying to desperately decipher what to do next, you're faced with what your relationship with your parents now looks like. And they're doing the same with you, by the way. Today's gal pal, Pam Reynolds, author of Caregiving with Confidence, takes the guesswork out of caregiving. 
And Pam draws on her extensive experience, both personally, which I want her to share, and professionally. She's a certified age living care manager, a certified professional gerontologist, and a certified dementia practitioner. She has a diverse vocational background that includes assisted living facility and nurse home management, as well as owning a company of her own that helped people age in place at home. Pam, welcome to the Live Like Your Nail Color podcast. Oh, thank you, Mary. It's such a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm so glad you're here. You know, this is a topic that I know isn't the easiest to cover or the easiest to talk about, but particularly women <laughs> around my age and at this post age and stage of life, it's so pertinent. It's so pertinent. It doesn't mean it's restricted to that, but certainly a lot of the gals listening are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And this is this is part of our reality. Um, now, I want to get to that. But before we dive into that, I always mm -hmm. ask my nail color guests, um, mm -hmm. what's your nail color persona and uh, and did it nail you? So we get to know a little bit about you. So what is your nail color persona, Pam? And did it nail you? Oh, Mary, this was so fun. So my nail color persona is the solid sister. <laughs> so, nice. Okay. Yeah. So I would I would say I relate to that. You know, the steady kind of reliable pillar for your friends and family. And I think a lot of caregivers can probably relate to to being in that role. And you know, I have I have found myself kind of being the person that everyone turns to for support and advice when when the uh, when the chips fall, I think that's what you say. No, do I get yeah, that right? That's right. Chip happens. <laughs> this is one of those in life where it's like, uh, right? My mom fell. Yeah. Happens, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing I've come to realize as I mature is that I need other solid sisters around me. You know, we're we're meant to do life together, and it's okay sometimes to show weakness and lean on others for support and. So I think I'm I'm an evolving solid sister. I'm <laughs> learning to uh, learning you know the power of community as well. So an evolving so, uh, solid sister. I'm going to remember that. That might that <laughs> like the next iteration of the nail of the what's your nail color? Right. <laughs> um, now, do you have a fave color that you like to wear as a solid sister? And did that you know the description of that say anything about you? Yeah, you know, my I mean I went with pink when I chose um the color on the 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 test. Yeah. Um, um I'm but generally I'm usually I'm either pink or I'm the naked. So if I have time to go get a professional manicure, I got my this is about a week old here, but um I get a light pink or more of a neutral color. My my favorite, I, I own my own, I take my own with me. It's called Baby Take a Vow by Opie. And that's my <laughs> that's my go-to. Uh, that's what I'm wearing now, um, but I did this one myself. So, um, so if I have time for a manicure, that's I'm usually usually have pink or some kind of nice neutral. Um, then I think the description was pretty spot on. Modest, sensible, gets along easily with others. I think that's that's pretty much me. But but you know, I'm also kind of like the mullet when it comes to my nails, like business in the front, party in the back, because my toes <laughs> yeah. will usually have some kind of sparkly or bright color that I'd never put on my fingernails. You know, so. So yeah, I might have a little trick up my sleeve once in a while. <laughs> that, that's so hilarious. But, you know, I, yes, I know the mullet, right? You know, if, if you're like, what are you talking about? Like, imagine the bad mullet haircuts from the 80s, mm -hmm. right? Which were like short on top, but then were long in the back and even kind of shaved some, you know. Like, that's right. Right on the sides, right. So that's why it's wild like, in the back. Is this in the front yeah. party in the back? <laughs> it is again and again. It is. Um, 
I've seen this with, you know, gal pals who have been guests on the Live Like Your Nail Color podcast. And then beyond that, which is, you know, we kind of go mild on the fingers, but wild on yes. the toes, you know? Right. Like, so which one is our, you know, what, which one's our, our true authentic self? I really think That's right. toes. I'm pretty uh, sure it is. We're yeah. a little, we're a little hesitant to bring little, it out in public yes, a little bit more, right. right? We say it's practical because then you don't see as much of the chip. You know, I'm like, it ain't that about that. <laughs> that might be true practically or functionally, but really, the reality is, we're a little bit more cautious of showing. You know, there you go. So, so um, all right. So, I appreciate both, though. I, I realize both. All right. So, um, knowing that. Uh, let's get started and, and understand because if you're reliable and and you are, um, you know, you're the solid sister next to us, particularly as a caregiver, <laughs> that's yeah. the kind I want, like you said. And I found that starting in my mid-50s, I start hearing the term caregiver a whole lot more. So I want to start with the basics because you're the expert. What does caregiver really mean? Oh, excellent question. You know, I have found that many people who are caregivers don't even realize it. And in fact, I think I, I start the book with this subject because I identifying as a caregiver, that's the first step. It's one of the first hurdles that we have to overcome. And when, once we identify that way, then we can learn to accept and even embrace that that role that we have. And for many people, it's one of many roles. So it's just kind of you're hesitant to embrace another another role and put on another hat. Yeah. Like, um, get that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but uh, the reality is many of us are, are walking it out just without without really accepting it. And so a caregiver is, I mean, it's really anyone that, that supports another person, whether that be physically, emotionally, financially. And the thing about this is that it can start really minimal, but snowball very quickly. And so I, I, I call it um, the slippery slope of caregiving. You know, it really sneaks up on us. And, and it sounds like that that's kind of, you know, with your story, Mary, is, you know, it kind of just starts with, you know, just check-ins and kind of routine visits and making sure things are, are okay. And it just, as over time, it can really start to pile up. And we don't even really recognize what's happening because we're so close to it. Yeah. I Well, I love that definition because you know, I thought about it. I thought caregiver, someone who gives care. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways we can give. There, care. Yeah. You know, I mean, really every mom has been a caregiver, right? Absolutely. Is a caregiver. Um, but I know that we often associate the term with aging you know, parents yes. or loved ones or those in our lives, right? That we're yes. doing something for. And of course, I'm specifically talking about my mom, but really I'm caring in uh, ways and supporting my dad, yes. uh, who is really like the direct on-site moment-to-moment caregiver, right? So right. It, it really does take a team or t- or take a village. I can, and I get the slippery slope, but you know, it's not, you know, that sounds like a bad thing, but the reality is, is that as they get older and they will, just like I'm getting older, predictably yeah. the care needs will increase. That's right. right? It's just as when we were a babe, and, and I thought of this, it, it really hit me one day. And instead of this, oh, I've given up my whole life and oh my gosh, and which by the way, I haven't. I think that's an important thing not to yeah. absolutely yeah. do. But as I thought about, okay, yes, my life has fundamentally changed, but and and I'm giving far more time and attention there. Um, I thought, you know, 
they brought me into this world. And for the first 18 years of my life, minimum, they gave up their lives for me. They did it voluntarily and they wanted to do it. I mean, certainly as an infant, I was completely (laughs) at their mercy, you know, kind of a thing. And I thought, why, why not at the end of their lives, I get to pay that back. I get to return the favor, right? And it's not about weights of, you know, I did as much, they did as much. It's just simply about recognizing what they have done for me and that I have an opportunity to do it for them. And with that shift, it's really helped me a lot. And um, that doesn't mean I don't have a whole lot to learn about how to do this in a healthy way, um, but it it certainly helped uh, with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a hard shift to make. Yeah. For both for both the caregiver and the care recipient. You yeah. know, I mean it it is certainly true um that we were taken care of by our parents when we were small and now that role is reversed, but you know there's so many dynamics to that. There's so many layers to that, you know, and and that role reversal that you that you end up in, it's not easy for for the parents to accept that. You don't you don't it's not natural, right? Like they're the parent and they are the one that's supposed to be taking care of, of you. And that's, it's very, very hard to make that, that role reversal and to allow your children to start stepping in and taking care of you. And so that's where we have to be very, just very respectful and careful with that dynamic shift and recognize that we're not parenting our parents. I I, I feel like I don't know. I have a kind of, you hear that term all the time, but I kind of take take issue with it because they're still our parents. They yeah. still lived, you know, decades before us and raised us and taught us and and you know, they have so much to to still offer and you know, we just have to we are supporting them, but we're not we're not parenting them. You know, we still have to be respectful of that of that of of that role. So I want to ask some from your experience just for everyone listening is there a typical age that we start, uh, that our aging parents start to need care? Can we kind of, I, I mean, mine have been late eighties and that's pretty amazing, but I yeah. don't think that's the usual starting point. Well, you know, I get that question all the time. Uh, when do we need to start doing this planning? You know, what is the sweet spot? And I'll, I'll risk sounding too much like, like a lawyer with my answer, but it depends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're you know, I mean, to have a specific number, but okay. So why does it depend? Well, I mean, seriously, there's no time that's too early to start preparing because crisis can, can strike at any time. And the idea is to get ahead of that, to get upstream and, and to plan, put a plan in place before the crisis starts. Mary, people don't do this. I mean, every every family I, I talk to is in the midst of a crisis when they call and right. they have not planned. And so that's that is human nature to not worry about something until it becomes an issue. Right. Um, but, you know, to be prepared for the worst and hope for the best is really, really the goal here. And so we want to we want to be able to take time with our decisions and walk out a plan at our own pace and, you know, be able to make educated choices. And that's so much better than functioning from a purely reactive stance. And so I just think that there's really no 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 time. It's too early to start at least thinking about these things, having conversations. You know, we um, at the law firm where I work at, we we give presentations about doing you know basic um, uh, power of attorney and advanced directive as soon as you turn eighteen. As soon you know, as soon as you're a, an adult, put those documents in place because 
no one else can speak for you when you're incapacitated and you're a legal adult. Yeah. You know, and so, um, of course, uh, estate planning looks a lot different for a, a 50, 60, 70 year old than an 18 year old. But there are still basic pieces that really every every competent adult should should have. So, yeah, it's there is no sweet spot, but <laughs> the sooner the better. So you also weren't prepared. You had a crisis. How did you become a caregiver? What's your personal story? Well, my my initial introduction to caregiving was actually as a child, as a teenager. My um, parents had gotten divorced um, when I was around twelve or thirteen, and I lived with my my dad most of the time. And um, his mother, my paternal grandmother, um, was aging. My my grandfather had passed away, and she was living alone. And, um, she had a, a few, uh, medical issues. She had, um, she had had breast cancer and, um, uh, you know, some other, some other medical problems, but ultimately it was Alzheimer's that really made, you know, everything go awry. <laughs> um, and so just watching my, my dad, along with my aunt, who was actually a registered nurse, um, and had cared for my, my uncle before he passed away. Um, they, you know, my dad and my, my aunt, they did their best and and came together. And my aunt did a lot of the more, um, hands-on things that you think of as a caregiver, right? She was the nurse. So she did, you know, the bathing and the dressing and, and things like that, where my dad, um, handled the bills and did the grocery shopping and, you know, the finances and things like that. And so I just remember watching them work together and try to try to piece together a plan and try to, you know, divvy up the the task and and keep this going and keep her in her home as long as they possibly could. And my dad just really he just really didn't have a good understanding of what dementia was and what what was happening to my grandmother. You know, he saw it as um that she was being finicky or disagreeable. You know, he was really struggling with her cognitive decline, even though her doctor was, you know, telling him what was going on. I just think it was a lack of understanding, lack of education um, that was, you know, frustrating for him. And so ultimately um, she, and she did end up needing to go into full-time care. It just wasn't safe for her to be alone, even with their support. She actually, en- she actually ended up driving her, her car through her front porch. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Which was kind of the, the final, um, the final straw there. So and even even then, I don't think my you know my dad was like, oh, what is she doing? You know, was, I'm not sure that he understood that this was not really her fault. Um, but nonetheless, um, so she went into a, a memory care facility, and and similar to your story, spent the last seven or eight years of her life um, just in this cognitive decline state in in a long term care facility. And um, I just really you know. I, it really resonated with me. Um, I wanted to find a way to get involved in, in, in the lives of people that were helping their aging parents. Um, just from that very young age, I just knew that I was, I was called into, into helping people navigate that, that process. And so, um, so that was my first family experience, um, with caregiving. And now as an adult, I've, I've gone on to, you know, other, other, um, caregiving experiences. My, my husband and I were caring for my father-in-law, um, until he passed away last year. Um, 
And also now I'm kind of in the thick of it with my own, with my own mom. So it has evolved over the, (laughs) over the course of my, my lifetime. Um, but you know, I, I, again, professionally, um, called into, into this line of work and worked, you know, with hundreds of maybe thousands of, of families from long-term care to home health care, um, just trying to help them navigate those different systems. So, wow. I was thinking you have been exposed to this and, and had a front row seat ever since you were mm-hmm. like 12, 13, 14 years old, sounds like. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's something that most of us don't have. And boy, uh, I love it. No wonder you can say caregiving with confidence. <laughs> I keep yeah. I confidence out of experiences and competence, right? And, yeah. and learning and doing and seeing what works. And, and you know, not everybody's right. story is the same, but you start to see patterns and you start to see things that are, are strategies and techniques that do work again yeah. and again. So what inspired you to write your book, Caregiving with Confidence? Yeah, you know, writing a book is uh, <laughs> not for the faint of heart. I no, wouldn't rec- it's not. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it is, I'd recommend it, it if it's on your heart. Okay, let's put it, but it's not yeah. <laughs> to do, right? Right, it's not something to go into lightly. Um, it was, it was something again, just a calling that I felt because I heard countless times from families that they would just say, I wish there was a handbook that I could have had in the beginning that would have given me everything I needed. Um, you know, and just, I, I would just see the same crises, like you said, play out over and over again. And, um, people would always say, Oh, if I just had you, if I just had you five years ago, if I just, you know, if I just had met you, you know, and obviously I can only be in so many places at once. Right. And I can only help so many families individually, but I just knew that, um, or I thought that by writing a book, I could reach a broader audience and arm them with information that I had learn from experience and help them just, just make a bigger impact on the lives of caregivers. And I like them, I feel like the same way. I wish I had this tool back then, right? Like I wish my family had, had this book. And so it's a, it's a legacy in that way as well. That's great. I I appreciate you writing it. Seriously. Uh, I know there's other books about caregiving that's out there, but I love that it's, this is, um, it's like, a, like you said, it's like a manual. You get very practical very quickly in it. And in fact, you have five overall tips, you say, the top tips um, for those who are beginning on their caregiving journey. Yeah. There are gals listening right now who, who are at the beginning, like yeah. me, um, mm-hmm. or they're fearful that they're going to start soon, okay? Right. I to, uh, you know, back to my hometown to be close to my parents. And that was actually nine months ago. I didn't know when they would need help. I knew they right. needed some, but I didn't know there would be, there would likely be some precipitating event. And I was like a little bit holding my breath <gasps> and then it happened. Right. So yeah, yeah, there are other gals listening who are exactly in that same spot. So what are these five tips for people who are at the beginning of their caregiving journey? Yeah. You know, I start the book out with that just to give people um, kind of a snapshot of, of how, how they need to approach this. And I use the the acronym GUESS. Um, so it's it starts with the G is get organized. Um, disorganization is, I mean, it's just really the root cause of an array of problems for caregivers. And um, just, you know, helping or trying to get your care recipient to get their legal and financial and medical affairs in order. Um, it'll just be a huge relief to you later. Um, so that's the G, get organized. U is understanding your care recipient. So it's it's just getting your arms around the most 
um, the the immediate and long-term needs of the person you're caring for. Um, We're going to frequently be in positions where we have to provide information and answer questions to the professionals as we're caring for um, for our loved ones. So, you know, understanding, having a, a good understanding of of their situation, of their care needs, um, will just better enable you to advocate and, and care for them. The E is educate yourself. So that just means research and find ways to increase your knowledge and, you know, on, on their disease process and on effective caregiving strategies in advance, um, just so that you can know what to expect later. Um, set boundaries is the first S. And that's just being realistic about how much of your time and energy that you can really expend in caregiving, as we talked about earlier, right? So um, many caregivers have multiple roles, jobs, other people who depend on them. Um, So it's just vital to kind of go in with those expectations, setting limits, and just communicating those limits to your other family members, your care recipient, and so forth. And then the final S is seek support. Um, this is, I mean, so, so critical. Just don't tackle this alone, right? Ask family or friends to help take on specific tasks to ease the burden. If you don't have local family support, you know, reaching out to your, your community, um, putting support system in place. Um, it's, it's, it's vital to put those, those pieces in place ahead of time. So you have, have the right people to call on when you need it. That's a great structure. I love how it takes the guess work out, right. of, out of how to get started. I was looking at these five things going, hmm, if I want to start with that first one, get organized, I could stop and go, well, I, they're not going to give me that information or I, I, you know, th- th- that's touchy, right? And right. it might be, but at least I could start to understand what is the information that I need. But everything else, understanding the 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 care recipient, what their immediate needs are, their long-term needs. I could ask them. I could, I could start to pursue that also with, with the doctors that they have, educating myself, setting boundaries, seeking support. I could start getting some of those other things in place. That feels very empowering when you say that. Well, it does. It breaks it down into, you know, actionable steps that, that are realistic and they do take time but that's why you're you're reading this book. I mean, you're that's why you're planning ahead is to start setting these things in in motion. And you know, as I said in the book, I mean, you 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 have to take care of the fire first, right? So if you're jumping into things in a crisis, then first things first, you know, put the fire out. But then, you know, our human nature is to go when the fire alarm is not sounding, our human nature is to ignore it. You know, that's yeah. okay. I don't have to worry about that right now. It's it's not on fire. But use the breathing room, you know, to take a step back and and look at these other areas and what what else can you do now to set yourself up um, for a better experience when the next crisis does hit. Okay, so note to self, Mary, okay, we're in a kind of a, a, a stabilized spot right. right now with my mom. And there's a part right. of me that wants to just go, okay, now I can do these yeah. things that are, has nothing to do with caregiving, like, oh, the rest of my life. And now right. I'm like, no, actually this is the time that I can breathe and take advantage burn. of it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So note to self. Well, in fact, that makes me think about, you know, when my mom suddenly fell and had hip, hip replacement, I did have a lot, a lot of questions. And immediately mm-hmm. I had a lot of questions. It was the acute yeah. thing. I had a lot of questions. I didn't have a lot of answers. And it wasn't yeah. just about 
this, you know, her physical health and the surgery, it was now I started asking about thinking about so many other areas that yeah. get impacted. Whether she made it through that surgery, she didn't. I mean, there was that kind of scenario I, we had to all think about, even if we mm -hmm. didn't want to. So um, I'm trying to get a handle on what areas overall are are the most important. And given your experience, what are some what are some of these chunks of overall areas, and what should we focus on first, and why? Because mm -hmm. once we get these, the the like the five overall kind of strategy tips and that mentality, yeah. shift, I got to get into the logistics of financial or legal and physical. That's you know emotional. I mean, what are those areas? You've got the experience. I want to learn from you. Okay, <laughs> I want to fast forward um, the whole process. Well, you know, first things first, and that's the care of your mom making sure she's taken care of, right? So jumping in, getting a handle on the physical and medical needs because things are different now. She's had a hip replacement. You know, her her abilities are different. Her um, stamina might have might be different. You know, things, things have changed. She might have a new routine um, with therapy. She might have new medications, things like that. So uh, we got we to gotta kind of focus, focus there, make sure the immediate needs are met, make sure that your mom is getting the health care that she needs. And, um, you know, I'll, by the way, that doesn't mean you are going to be the one doing it all. Right. And so sometimes right. people think as a caregiver that that means they have to be doing all the tasks themselves. And as caregivers, we have to ensure that our care recipients needs are met. But that doesn't mean actually physically doing it all ourselves necessarily. It just means making sure it's it's getting done. And so. I mean, caregiver burnout is like a whole nother topic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but, I know. You know but... I don't, don't want to have to know too, too much about that. <laughs> but I, I, understand it. I was actually thinking when you were saying that two things. One is that this isn't just about the physical and medical needs of my mom. It's also considering my dad at the same time. Absolutely. And I know a lot of times if both of your parents are alive and they're together, but even if they're not, but if they're both right. alive um, and one starts to have physical medical issues, um, Absolutely. You know, the other one, if they are immediately right there doing any kind of support, they can go down fast too. So, so we're we're trying to be cognizant of both, right? And and in that, the the other thing I thought of was when you said you don't have to do it all yourself. I was like, my project management skills are going to come in handy. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. Career, right. That's so. right. You know, and and really, that's how we have to approach it. I I I say this all the time. I mean, we. We use consultants and professionals in so many different areas of our life. I mean, who who goes out to try build a house for themselves, you know, without hiring an architect and an engineer and a and a general contractor and so forth? N nobody. I mean, unless okay. you are, unless yeah. that's your profession, right? So, you know, it's it's why are you tackling this without that team, without that team in place that can that can guide you and you know, so we're not, we shouldn't expect ourselves to just become experts overnight in all these different areas. And, and, and yes, I mean, caregiver burnout, um, is a real thing. And when we try to tackle all these tasks and do them, complete them all ourselves, that's what we're setting ourselves up, up for. And so it's, um, so I mentioned that for, for a reason, because it's a very, um, it is a, a very risky, you know, way to kind of approach this. So, um, anyhow, just making sure that you have your arms around the care needs of your mom um, and your dad and how to best assist them with that. That's your current fire, right? So right. 
Um, I wrote the book in such a way that you can jump into whatever whatever category you're currently dealing with, put the fire out, and then step back and take a look at the bigger picture. And so in this scenario you describe, I, I think you know it's a really good time to start thinking about the environment and whether or not your parents are going to need accommodations to stay where they are long term. I mean, every single family, uh, every client I've interfaced with, with the exception of, I don't know, I can probably count on one hand how many times that it's been the opposite, but they want to stay and age in place in their home. Yeah, that's their primary goal. I want to. I don't want. I don't want to leave this house unless I'm leaving in a body bag. You know, I mean, that's. I. I can't even tell you how high on the list that is for most people I, I interface with who are aging, and we just have to think about okay, if that's your goal. How do we make that happen? And what changes do we need to make now in advance to make that that wish come true? And, you know, we'll do everything we can to make that happen. Um, but we also need a plan B, right? We need to start talking about what if the chips fall and <laughs> this is yeah. no longer possible? You know, what do, what do we do? How are we going to pivot? And so, um, so those are the conversations that, you know, you need to start having when things are stable as to what does this look like long-term? And, you know, when it comes to falls, I mean, you mentioned your mom had a fall. Right. The primary risk factor of yeah, falling is a previous fall. Right. It, <laughs> yeah. That's right. And the yeah. likelihood is that she'll fall, she will fall again. The so likelihood she, is high. Yeah. yeah I mean, once, once an uh, aging person falls, it's, it's the, the statistics are, are there. It's very likely they will fall again. So we have to start looking at the environment and and really start making fall prevention a priority because falls it's it's one of the leading causes of death among age, aging people. So so really, um, it's safety. Safety becomes a real priority at this stage of looking at okay, is aging in place really um, feasible? How do we make it as safe as possible? And then what's our plan B if we can't do that? Got it. That makes that that's kind of where we're at right now. And and I would say then immediately with that becomes well, what can we afford? Right? Or or I should say the financial picture, because yeah. part of that aging in place, which sounds great, and I support that, um, is that, well, that may easily include home health care um, in addition to modifications. Okay, so the modifications can come to the house and it's kind of one and done, right, kind of a thing. But then the home health care can be a ongoing and increasing need, and then it's a financial need. And, Absolutely it, right. and we got, yeah. you know, we get, get down to real numbers and then how much asset you have and that kind of a thing. So for us, financial quickly comes right after considering the environment. Would that make yeah, sense? It's a part of the conversation. I mean, yeah. they have to go hand in hand because, you know, I mean, you can dump tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars into to a home to make it more livable, long-term age in place, a, a friendly but then you have no cash, <laughs> you know, all your equity is, is tied up in the house. And so you have to have, you have to, how does that look? What, what can we do? And so, um, uh, for a lot of, of aging adults, their primary, um, asset is their home. And so you have to consider, you know, consider that and how do we leverage that? Or are we able to leverage that, um, to pay for care? And if not, how are we going to do that? Because I'm, I'm here to tell you that, you know, the, the, long-term care funding sources that are government um, funded are not, they don't favor aging in place. They favor the facility model. 
And there's been some shift in that in the last few years, but it's still way behind in terms of, of supporting people um, to age in place at, at home. It's very much designed to have people enter long-term care facilities and pay for them to live there on a long-term basis. So aging in place and counting on, you know, sources like Medicare and Medicaid to pay for that is not really realistic in most, most places in the country. And not only that, but, you know, most people didn't plan, they counted on their social security and, and, you know, they didn't plan on, um, didn't plan well for financially for end of life. So the resources just simply aren't there. So then what does that look like? If you have to count on Medicaid, if you have to use um, government government funding, then what are the realistic options? And I say all the time, you know, money gives you options, but pre-planning also gives you options, right? If your options are going to be limited, making the plans in advance is going to give you the better options of what of what is out there. So that's it. I, I think the financial part, and I I strategically end the book with the financial piece. So it's fresh on on the reader's mind because it that's that's kind of a conversation that has to be woven into the whole into the whole the whole thing. Yeah, I boy, what you have said really resonates. You know, um one of the uh, moments during the during that acute time after my mom broke her hip was that she left the hospital and then um went to a rehab facility mm-hmm. there were no rehab beds in yeah. our immediate town which by the way has lots of retirees and we have some facilities so that was eye-opening yeah. like yeah they're yeah. full so we had to go to a place that was about 15 17 miles away all right, not yeah, too well, bad. I'm not complaining about very it. very fortunate, yeah. But here's the thing. They said, oh, yes, there's a bed. And we. so the, my dad made the decision, all right, we'll take it. So she gets transferred to that, which means that the hospital and their vehicle have to take her right. safely from the hospital to the facility. And then, you know, we meet her there in our own cars. They right. kind of whisk her in, take her to this room. Mm-hmm. It was not on the rehab side of this facility mm-hmm. it was on the nursing home convalescent side of the facility. Now, not every facility has both, right? But this one did. This was quote unquote her bed. And we're like, this was not what we were told. So that's what right. the shocker was. Okay. The shocker yes. was we're expecting one thing. We're getting another. Now we're feeling kind of stuck. And they said, well, as soon as a bed opens up on the rehab side, well, then I learned and we learn, and now it's like five o'clock in the evening and stuff. So she's yeah. going to be in this facility with not the same level of attention and care uh, that we were anticipating as a rehab patient, but instead the level and care that's going to be given to someone who's in a nursing home. And she was sharing a room and it was just, so I stayed with her all night. Yeah. It was one of the most scary and uh, nights of my life eye opening yeah and mm-hmm. eye opening that was the thing and and what i realized was i was immersed in the situation of this is what it will be like in a nursing home yeah and many people and by the way it wasn't awful awful it yeah. wasn't great great it was something that i went i'm now going to want to do everything i can for my mom to limit or to not have any days in this kind of environment. And here was the thing that really broke my heart. One of the nurses aides said to me as I was asking her questions and she said, you know, 
a, a lot of our residents, that's what they call them, of course, residents, they'll call them patients because they live there, residents, right? Um, never have anyone visit them. That's right. And yeah. I thought, oh, oh, you know, we've heard that, but when you're in the middle of it and yeah. you see these individuals and some of them, are, they're not all there, you know, they're just not. Some of them, and my mom's quote unquote roommate could not speak. She could only utter sounds. Something had happened. Maybe she had a stroke. I don't know. She could move, but it was, it was very, uh, she was very bent over and, and, you know, had, had a, what's called a roll later that she could move around and stuff. But then I saw pictures on the wall that I'm sure her family had put up when she was a younger woman and she was a vibrant woman. And I thought, oh, 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 how sad it is of, of, of uh, so often the end of life. You know, it's not, it's not pretty. And she, there's nothing for her that she quote earned it. Right. It's just what has happened. And it could easily have happened to my mom. My mom could have a stroke any moment and this could be her situation. And I say that because I, uh, out of, uh, let's all have our eyes open as to what, if we do nothing and we do not plan and we do not try to make an attempt uh, to understand what is ahead of us, what's the possibility? This is what we get plopped into, likely. Right. And right. I would say that um, this is this is something that we can do something to have a better end of life experience for our for our those who are ahead of us in age. But how about ourselves as well? Right. Right. It really w- was an eye opener, and and I. I didn't know necessarily what all to do with it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, what next actions, which is why I love your book. It gives kind of a framework and it gives a guide and you can get to that. But it gave me a big reason why. A why. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that's why I emphasize the plan B, because you can have, you know, this perfect plan in your mind of, of aging in place and being independent and, you know, up until your last days and passing away peacefully in your own bed. and. I pray that that happens, you know, for you. I really do. But the reality is one fall, a stroke, the the things that you mentioned, they can happen to any of us at any time. And if we don't have a plan B, if we don't know what's coming, you're right that we're at the mercy of the system and what's available and how Medicare and Medicaid work. And so, you know, even if you, you never plan to use it, but most people don't, Let's let's think about these things. You know, you can you can get on waiting lists in advance at the the top tier facilities, even if it's Medicaid. That's going to be your funding source. If you plan ahead and you go, you know, you make the have these conversations and you're in communication with um, the administrators and and you you get your ducks in a row, you got your paperwork done. You can have a choice, you know, and and maybe it's not going to be the Taj Mahal of of assisted living facilities if you paid twenty thousand dollars a month. But it'll be the the best option of what's out there, and you might not have to to wait for a bed or go twenty miles from your family, or even worse, right? I mean, I I used to do that for for a living, and I would see people get shipped out, you know, ship, I mean, from Pen- here to Pennsylvania, you know, four or five hours away from their their loved ones because that's the only bed that was available. And so, I understand you don't want to go down that path, but but facing it as a potential reality. And lining up your, you know, your options ahead of time 
if it comes to that, it's going to give you a better experience. You're, you're going to have more options than if you just wait for the crisis to hit and take what's available. Well, I was I was reading in preparation for our conversation some articles, and uh, I will say that I can't remember the exact reference of this, so you can verify this or not. But but here's my big takeaway in statistics. Right now, you know, we have something like two to three percent of the population in the United States that need these this kind of care. But in a good fifteen to twenty years, it's going to double, <clears throat> and that's just because of our aging population, right? And so I thought, oh my gosh. When I heard again and again the lack of, or we need more beds, you know, rehab beds, and we need more care, home care, you know, home health caregivers, and we need more facilities, and I thought, this is now. It's yes. only going to be worse, uh, right. uh, you know, in the future. And of course, it could be an area of growth for you know businesses and companies to build these kind of facilities. But to to just also go, a huge oh, burden. Right. It is. It is. It's a it's an overall uh, challenge for our society. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think the United States is alone in that because, right. they're, you know, across the, the world, the, the, the population has grown and, and is aging. So so so, you know, one of the things, though, I want to go back to some of these categories that you say, hey, start where. So we you know, we've covered physical and medical. So that mm-hmm. was one. Look at that one. Environment, financial. You know, this whole idea of aging as place is great at home, but there may be a time where it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. given the level of care. One of the things that I've seen as an advantage, and we've already talked with my dad about this, and he gets it, but it is that because of where my mom's at from a medical, physical, and cognitive point of view, she doesn't get the nearly the amount of social interaction. That she mm-hmm. do, and she is a social creature. Like she responds, and her whole face lights up when she's interacting with somebody. Um, what about this social component? Is that it? Is that one of your big areas to consider and look at? It absolutely is. I think we have to approach that from a very realistic standpoint of who the person we are caring for, who they are, and how they live their life, and. Someone like your your mom, who was a social butterfly and got energy from being around people, probably isn't going to flourish if she's isolated and you know lonely in her her old el- older age. And so we just have to um, try and do our our best to meet them where they're comfortable and provide the level of social support that they've had in the past. And there's a flip side to that because there's some people who aren't that way and and don't get a lot of enjoyment out of out of socialization and we try to force them into it in their older age right and so it's like well they never were the social butterfly and now we're saying oh move into this nursing home and go do all the activities and make a bunch of friends and that's probably not realistic so i i i just kind of start with that because you have to think about who they are as a a person and what their social needs are but then we do our best to try to try to meet them. And it, it, there are ways to do that with the age in place model, you know, it's just by keeping them doing our, our, our best to keep them connected to the social sources that they have, they have lived with their, in their lives, reaching out to, as they become more homebound, reaching out to the groups and organizations that they were a part of and asking, you know, just, I mean, simply asking sometimes is, a, is, making them aware, you know, Hey, my mom can't, can't get out there as much or just not able to participate. Um, you know, uh, like she used to, 
there's plenty of groups and organizations that are more than happy to to do what they can to help her continue to participate or to send you know people out into the community to to visit and to provide support and so sometimes it's just just raising our hand and saying hey you know can you can you do this and naturally that does dwindle becomes harder um to maintain connected and so moving into a senior living type community you know it's just kind of finding the sweet spot of what what works for them you know activities can be um widely varied in these communities and just finding you know a routine and a schedule that that works for them and activities that they actually enjoy don't be afraid to talk to the activities director and say hey you know mom really enjoyed doing this maybe maybe some other people in the community would like that let's get that let's try it out let's let's try to get a group going um activities directors would <laughs> trust me they would love that because they're always looking for new ways to engage um their community and so um, so speaking up and, and raising your hand and saying, how, you know, how can I help get this started or what can I bring in to add to your activities, activities calendar, just getting involved in that way, um, rather than just looking at what's there and saying, oh, that doesn't work for mom. All right, Pam. So now we've talked about social. <laughs> That's a whole component. Uh, and I know there were, well, there's like five big categories. So yeah, uh, that are in your book. And so we've talked about, I think four of them, physical, medical was one environment is two. And like, what's where you're living basically, yeah. right? Financial um, is another big one. Social. We just talked about what's the last one. Cause I'm trying to think of what's, what's, what other areas are left. <laughs> So the last one is the first one I start with in the book. And there, there's a reason for that. Um, it's advocacy. And I start there because along with identifying as a caregiver, we also have to identify as an advocate. You know, the two are synonymous. And it's honestly um, overcoming so many hurdles in the caregiving process involves a lot of advocacy, speaking up and asking questions and probing a little bit further and, you know, sometimes saying, no, that's, that's not going to work for us. You know, um, just being prepared to speak on behalf of your care recipient is, is huge. You know, so many people, I think, approach caregiving from a, a kind of a meeker standpoint, just taking the professional's word for it and just going through the process um, without asking questions. And I, I advocate strongly against that. You know, you, you have to be looking, there's a lot of places where you're a care recipient, there's loopholes where they can fall through. And so you really have to be vigilant and watching for those things. And so, um, this also encompasses the legal side, right? So getting those documents in place, setting up the power of attorney and the advanced directive and, you know, getting, getting involved with their medical, financial, and legal affairs on the, on the front end to the extent that you can, so that you can help uh, manage those things along the way. Uh, you know what? I was wondering, I, you know what? I can totally see that uh, care recipients, particularly if they're older, being taken advantage of. Absolutely. Even in my short time thus far. So easy when you say you kind of get into, quote, the system, right? And they yeah. can move you along at, to, to their system. And you really do have to be an advocate. And that's one of the you know, and again, I think of my reason why, why do I want to even do that? Because right. I want to have a, a, a better situation than yeah. by default she may have been given to, you know, and I just don't think that's necessarily good enough, but it's also, yeah, I think about, well, 
it's kind of part of my responsibility, right? It's not the system's right. responsibility to be guiding the whole thing. It's really part of my responsibility. Um, is this also why you have gotten into elder care law at this point in your career? Yes, it, it really is. I mean, like I said, I, I just almost 20 years working in the senior healthcare industry, just seeing the same crises play over and over again in the same situations where elders do fall through the cracks and, and not get the care that they deserve. And so, you know, I think kind of looking back on my career, I've sort of, you know, every time I, I, I see an opportunity where I can help people on a, on a broader level, you know, I, I, I've taken that step to the best that I can. And I, I just see now there's a lot of opportunity in, you know, estate and elder law to educate people and advocate for people um, on a broader level. And so that's that's really I'm just taking that passion, you know, into a, another another area. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, you really come at it with a compassionate point of view, too. I love that. Um, in episode 41, so mm-hmm. a few episodes back. My gal pal, Stella Capicelli-Carter, um, she and I were talking about taking care of yourself while taking care of aging parents. Yeah. Uh, she has She's ahead of me on this journey. But from your experience, personally and professionally, um, how important is self-care as a caregiver? And what does that really look like in practical terms? Yeah. Gosh, that episode was so good. You know, um, listening to you and Stella talk. I mean, so I have two thoughts. The first thing is what stood out for me in in that episode with Stella was when she talked about the emotions, right, that come along um, with caregiving. And some of those are, some of them even surprise us, right? Like we're not expecting the array of emotions that we're going to experience. And so I do want to reiterate something that that she said, which is that, um, I mean, if you've never done therapy before, now is the time, right? Because <laughs> yeah, sign we are, <laughs> you know, we are going to have to face and work through those emotions as they come. Um, we can't bury them. You know, things like fear and grief and resentment, you know, these are, are very unpleasant and often surprising emotions that arise during this process. And we, if we bury them and we don't face them, they're going to become a ticking time bomb. And so again, talking, kind of talking about pre-planning, right? Like we have to plan for how we're going to process these emotions and we need to work through them as they, as they arise and just honor them and recognize them and then let them go. So they don't fester during this, this time in our life. So I did want to, want to reiterate that. But um, the other thing I'll say, you know, I say this to caregiving audiences all the time is that self-care, it's not the buzzword that we think of. It's not about lattes and spa days, right? Like those things are are nice. Uh, sure, we we'd all like to have them more often, um, but most of the time, even if we wanted to, we don't have the time for that, you know. And so we have to embrace that. Self care is really more about those daily, consistent choices to take care of ourselves and prioritize our physical and mental health. You know, it's the, the cliches of you can't pour from an empty cup, or you have to put the the you know the air mask on in the plane before you can put someone else's on. I mean those. We really have to recognize those are those are cliches, but they're true and they're very applicable in the caregiving season. Um, we just have to make good choices for ourselves. We have to prioritize, you know, the things that keep us grounded. You know, journaling, time in nature, prayer and meditation. Um, and one thing I like to emphasize is that sometimes we have to say no to things in order to make room 
for these other things, right? Like we have to hold these things sacred, whatever it is for you that keeps you, keeps you, your cup filled. Um, As caregivers, we're so used to just being yes men and just, you know, doing what everyone else needs us to do. But sometimes you're going to have to, you're going to have to turn down an offer or an ask or an opportunity so that you can hold that time sacred. So just making sure that you build in um, time for those things that you that you keep it um, that you honor it and that you're just always prioritizing um, your own mental health physical and mental health on a day-to-day basis I love that you said daily choices too um you know I I just uh, finished a, a series called renew for resilience which is mm. the idea of looking at different areas of our lives as women um and what can we do to to renew them some you know make some tweaks right and, and yeah again and again what I heard and these were by the way these are areas like home organization and what you're eating and right. training and exercise and looking at your finances um, right. and you know looking at you know how you can uh, lighten your toxic load and yeah. all of those ended up coming down to making tweaks about your daily choices that's right and a lot of little tweaks can add up Absolutely. <laughs> to a to a groundedness to a solid sister or just simply overall just taking care of yourself better. Now I would add that you can take, you know, you can take a little more time, maybe once a month, to go to a nail salon and pay <laughs> there. Okay. Uh, I'm just a little biased to that. It doesn't necessarily take as much as a big spa day, right? And there's a lot of places you can drop in. Uh, and I wanna I, I wanna wrap up our time together with talking about nail color again. I always ask my guests, if you could create a nail color name mm. that would inspire us, and in this case, to not be afraid of caregiving and be the best caregiver we can be to uh, to a care recipient, in my case, you know, aging parents, what would that name be? So I came up with Perfectly Imperfect. Mm. Perfectly <laughs> Imperfect. That fits a lot of situations, but why this one? Well, you know, caregivers are a special breed. And, you know, not only are they used to always taking care of others, but oftentimes they are perfectionist. Raising my hand, I am, I am guilty <laughs> as charged, you know, and I don't really know why this is, why so many caregivers fall into that, that category. Um, but it's a dangerous trap, you know, being a caregiver and being a perfectionist. And so we just, we have to get comfortable that we are not going to be perfect as caregivers. And doing so is not important. You know, that's not, that's not what your care recipient needs from you. They don't need you to be perfect. They need you to care. They need you to have compassion, you know, and, and all the other things, you know, are going to work themselves out if we just stay grounded in in that place. And so I just, um, yeah, I just want caregivers to kind of give up the notion of, of being perfect and just realize that that's not, that's not our calling. You know, we're, we're called to serve and, and love others and, it really has nothing to do with 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 perfectionism. <laughs> mm, that's powerful. Uh, I love what you said. They don't need you to be perfect. They need you to care. Yeah. That's coming from someone who's been in a caregiving role of some type and at some level since almost 12 years old. That's yeah. that's that's powerful. Thank it's you. a hard lesson to learn. It, is? <laughs> it takes time. <laughs> You're still working on it, right? I'm still working on it. <laughs> that's, that's another challenge. This has just been so uh, educating. 
so um, encouraging for me personally. I hope it's been encouraging for every gal listening um, who is either in the caregiving journey or is knowing that it's out there. And, and in fact, can also give a little oomph to uh, do some planning for whoever might be caregiving to you. So yeah. you think think ahead in that way. For those who would like to reach out to you um, to connect with you, maybe get a copy of your book. And by the way, I'm going to put a copy of your book. You can get it on Amazon, Caregiving with Confidence. I'll put a copy, I'm sorry, link in the show notes. All right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for that, for sure. But how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm preparing to go to law school. So I am making that career pivot. Wow. Yeah. So I'll start in August on that journey. So right now I'm not actively providing um, any kind of consulting services or or care management through my company, the Aging Authority, but um, I am preparing a summer webinar series, an educational webinar series um, that's going to be coming hopefully in, in May or maybe early June. Um, in partnership with the Knowledgeable Aging Learning Center. So that'll be coming to my website. Um, that's a way that there will be an interactive component there um, that people will be able to join and and um, and you know take advantage of this summer. Um, and you know, I don't who knows what I'm gonna get into <laughs> in my free right. time while I'm in law school. Um, but of course, I have the book that people can read. I'll have this series coming up. So if you want to follow what I'm doing, um, the best way to do that is to go to theagingauthority.com um, and all the links and, and all my updates will be there. Excellent. All right. So agingauthority.com. And um, we can hopefully, if we will we'll look there for the webinar series. Yeah. And when it gets finalized. And uh, sounds like we ought to jump on that opportunity because that's happening before you're going to be consumed. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> and caregiving yourself and being a you know wife and being a mother and and that's that's a lot right there. I'm, yeah, really I'm getting ready for a new season. Then. Okay. You've written a book, you've it's out uh this book came out in the, within the last year, back September, yeah. I believe, of 2022. So um that was your gift to us while you're now getting law school so you can be even more powerful for those in elder law. So good for you. Congrats on that. Thank you, Mary. I appreciate it. This has been fun. All right. Thank so much you. fun. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right. We'll talk again soon. And now for the after party, I call Flip the Chip, where I take a few moments to highlight something my gal pal share that can help us all flip a challenge or a difficulty that's holding us back into something more positive that helps us move forward. What I want to highlight today are Pamela's top five tips for caregivers. They're easy to remember because they spell guess, G-U-E-S-S, and start to take that guesswork out of how to begin your caregiving journey. So G, get organized. Disorganization is the root of so many problems for caregivers. Help your care recipient get their legal, financial, and medical affairs in order now. It will be a huge relief for later. You understand your care recipient. Get your arms around the immediate and long-term needs of the person you're caring for. As a caregiver, you will frequently be in positions where you must provide information and answer questions. E, educate yourself. Research and find ways to increase your knowledge on effective caregiving strategies in advance so that you know what to expect. The more tools and resources you have, the better equipped you will be and the easier you can adapt as things change, because they will. 
S, set boundaries. Be realistic about how much of your time and energy you can expend on caregiving. It is vital to set clear limits and communicate them to your care recipients and family members. And then the final S in guess, seek support. Don't tackle this alone. Trust me. Ask family or friends to take on specific tasks to ease the burden. If you don't have local support, seek help from churches, caregiving support groups, civic organizations, or senior support services. Calling the local area agency on aging is an excellent place to start. By the way, they're all over the United States. So just Google area agency on aging. You can dive into each of these tips more in Pamela's book, Caregiving with Confidence, Taking the Guesswork Out of Caregiving. And of course, you can also use your nail color to cheer you on by simply putting on a new nail color and giving it the name Perfectly Imperfect, as Pamela suggested, so that every time you look at your fingers or toes, you're reminded that in your caregiving journey, the one you're helping doesn't need you to be perfect. They need you to care you can make good choices to create the career, business, and life you want. One step, one nail color at a time. I look forward to being with you next time on the Live Like Your Nail Color podcast. Thanks for listening to the Live Like Your Nail Color podcast. Ready to live and laugh more? Know a friend who could use some of that too? Then subscribe at livelikeyournailcolor.com or your favorite podcast app and share this episode right now with the person who popped into your mind. Together, let's flip the chip to be stronger, smarter, and happier.